I'm going to read an Old Testament scripture as well as a New Testament scripture. The Old Testament scripture is not listed in the bulletin, but it's Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 14. It's in your pew Bible on page 1,225, if you'd like to follow along. Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 14. The context of speaking of a new covenant that is to come upon God's people, uh, the prophet proclaims these words. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them. And will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy in the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. The young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. The maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. These words, although could initially be seen as having their fulfillment and the return of the people of Israel back to the promised land, When the temple foundation was built, there were people there who saw Solomon's temple who were very young at the time and who cried for it was a far cry from the original glory that it had. Therefore, this language of God being a shepherd and gathering his people, feeding them from his bounty, the lame and the blind coming to see and to walk points us to its true fulfillment and that of Jesus Christ, which we read of here in John chapter 10, verse 22 to 30. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Keep in mind that what we read here in John chapter 10 is a continuation, 
Not only from the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9, but also Jesus' response to the Jews, the Jewish leaders, earlier in chapter 10 about him being the great shepherd and these people who are coming out of the, uh, the Israelite expression of true religion at that time, like the blind man, and placing their faith in Jesus as the true shepherd. And this continues, that story. It's sometime following this, uh, where Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. Now, today we would call that Hanukkah. It was not a feast that was described or put down in Old Testament scriptures. It happened between the time of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, and the time of Jesus' current ministry, where there was a Maccabean revolt because a Roman leader had taken over the temple and had replaced worship of Yahweh with the worship of a pagan god. And therefore, the Maccabeans came in, Judas Maccabean, Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer, was a, uh, a zealot, a war leader, and he led a revolt that kicked the Romans out of the temple, and when they rededicated the temple to worship of Yahweh God, the feast of Hanukkah became a regular practice at this time. So this is important to understand because Jesus is accusing these leaders of being poor leaders, and because the Jewish people had suffered under many poor leaders, which would have come to mind at the time of the Feast of the Dedication because of what occurred there. We're told that it's winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade, so some time has passed since the earlier events in chapter 10, and the reason why we're told it's winter most likely is because Jesus is in a covered area of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade, probably to keep out of the rain, which would have been common in that time. Charles Spurgeon was once preaching this sermon, this very text that I'm preaching to you this morning, the great prince of preachers over in London. And he was often accused for uh, being too uh, blatant with his teaching on the doctrines of grace, or what some people call Calvinism, and he made this remark concerning this passage. I don't know another way to preach from this text than the way in which I am preaching from it. Somebody says, oh, that is Calvinism. I don't care what it is. It is scriptural. I have this inspired book before me, and I cannot see any meaning in the words before me if they do not mean that those who have received life from the Lord Jesus have an endless inheritance. I cannot make them mean anything else. I give my sheep eternal life must mean that believers are eternally secure. And someone cries out, it is dangerous doctrine. Spurgeon said, I have not found it dangerous, and I have tried it these many years. I believe that it would be far more dangerous to tell people that they could be truly converted, and yet the work of grace would end in six months. And then they could come back again and begin all over again and do so as many times as they liked. It's with these sentiments from Charles Spurgeon that I hope to teach you this morning the great comfort that comes from these verses and knowing that our faithful Savior, our faithful Shepherd, Jesus Christ, 
knows those who are his. He knows those who are his. We're going to look at this passage in three parts. The first is the question. The second is the answer. And the third is the promise. Let's look at that first part, the question. Now, I've kind of set the scene by looking already with you at verses 22 and 23. But in verse 24, we're we're told that the Jews gathered around him. The Jews gathered around him. Now, it may not be as easy to see here in the translated English, but in the Greek, this sounds a lot like what you would see if a lion was surrounding its prey. The Jews closed in on him is really what's being said here. And that helps us to get a sense of the nature of the Jews' question here. They gathered around and they closed in on him like, like a predator upon its prey. And they asked him this question, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep us in the dark? How long will you keep us on edge? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now this is the ideal example of what I would call the right question for the wrong reason. The right question for the wrong reason. It is not the Jews' intention here to get from Christ a clear statement that he is the Messiah, the Christ, so that they can then rightfully worship him as Messiah, as the Christ. There is this genuine and real tension in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, where Jesus does not want to reveal that he truly is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Mashiach of God for this reason. Which comes very, very clearly in sight when we understand that this is at the time of the Feast of Dedication. There were many who thought Judas Maccabeus was the Messiah. And why is that so? Well, there was a great misunderstanding culturally at the time of the character and nature of the Messiah. That he was to be a political figure. One who would be a great military warrior. One who would get rid of all of those who are oppressing the people of Israel and bring back the kingdom of Israel to Solomon's time and its greatness. And this is a misunderstanding that continues today. This week I watched an interview between Ben Shapiro, who is an Orthodox Jew, and a very popular political uh, conversationist in our day and age, speaking with an apologist, William Lane Craig, and he said, why, to William Lane Craig, asking him the question, why do you uh, find convincing that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people? And the reason uh, William Lane Craig gave was, uh, I thought, a good one, but Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew, said, well, we find it not convincing because Um, we know from the Old Testament scriptures that the Jew is to be a political figure, that he's supposed to do all these things. So this misunderstanding continues today. Therefore, Jesus 
was very cautious about the way he went about revealing who he was. Because he did not want the people to grasp on to his declaration as being the Messiah with their false assumptions about who the Messiah and what the Messiah was supposed to do. Because their view of the Messiah and who the Messiah was and what the Messiah was supposed to do was part of the picture, but it was so little. It wasn't the full picture. So they asked the right question for the wrong reason. How, will you, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. And here is why they want him to state plainly that he is the Christ. Because they wish to take that opportunity to seize him, to arrest him, to crucify him as one who is stirring up trouble for the people of Israel bringing the wrath and the power and the might of the Roman Empire down upon them, but Christ's time has not yet come. So we have to see how he answers this question, don't we? Jesus answered in verse 25, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. So after I said, Jesus has been very careful about the way he reveals himself. In fact, uh, the only two times that I can think of that Jesus, uh, besides with his disciples, revealed his true uh, character as in saying plainly that he is the Messiah is with the woman at the well and then with the blind man in private, one-on-one. Of course, he uh, revealed this also to his disciples who did not understand it and did not believe uh, what he was saying because every time he said, I am the Messiah, he would say, uh, the, uh, the Christ must die and then be raised again. But he did. He did tell these Jews, but you do not believe. I did tell you, but you do not believe. In fact, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here as a declaration that all the works that he has done the signs of which he has performed are to point to his messianic character. And they have done so clearly, sufficiently, that there is no excuse. We are to understand that when Jesus has proclaimed all those many great I am statements, ego a me, as we talked about so far in the Gospel of John, that Jesus was not only declaring something about himself, but that he was declaring I am the ego a me of the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. I am the Yahweh, the covenant God. We are to understand that when Jesus in John chapter 5 said, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for Moses spoke of me. And we are to understand that when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, that he was declaring that he was the Messiah, that his healing of the lame, of the blind, is Meant to point them to Jeremiah 31, point them to Ezekiel, point them to the Old Testament to understand and to see in these Old Testament scriptures that their understanding 
of the Messiah was so narrow, was so, was so small that he was to be, yes, a great conqueror. But more so, he was to bring salvation to Israel, to the Gentiles from sin, not merely political oppression. Yet the question is still there, right? They asked, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles of the word there is the works. I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe. And the question here that we need to be asking is, why is it? That the Jews do not believe. Ultimately, why is it that the Jews do not believe? Is it for lack of evidence? Is it to be pointed at Jesus? He's the reason they do not believe because he has not given sufficient evidence of his messianic identity? There are many today who would say, Yes, this is the reason why people do not believe they have not been given sufficient evidence. Well, let me make one thing clear. I've watched plenty of videos of Christians who have gone to atheist rallies, And who have gone around and asked them one simple question. That's this. If I could give you sufficient evidence that the God of the Bible is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the universe, would you worship him? You know what their answer is? No. No, I wouldn't worship that God. That God is evil. The question is, is is the reason why these Jews do not believe is that they have not been given sufficient evidence? No, Jesus tells us, ultimately, the reason they do not believe are found in these words. Because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. It's a profound statement, one that can be very troublesome if we do not truly understand it as we should. It's a question, it's a statement that really brings up that often difficult tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. That is to say, if we believe that God is sovereign over salvation, that God has chosen before the foundation of the world a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will place faith in Jesus Christ because they are regenerated, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, that nothing in heaven or earth can stop this from happening, then maybe we would say the same words that Paul said in Romans 9, 
then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? What Paul is suggesting may be a response to this idea, to this concept, to this biblical doctrine of God's grace. As if someone would say, well then how can we still have, be held accountable for not believing? If the reason we don't believe is that we are not his sheep. You sense that tension, right? Jesus here looks to these Jews and says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Yet the truth remains that although God is sovereign over salvation, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ who do not believe in the good news, do so out of their own volition, out of their own will, out of their own fallen nature. They are held accountable before God. Or, as Paul would say, that all men be liars and God be the truth. They are held accountable because not only are they in Adam, their first parent, who did truly have a free will and who freely chose rebellion against God and therefore they are held together with him, but they are held accountable because they have their own sin and they choose out of their own sinful nature to reject the God they know exists, and to reject his Savior. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty, although at first may seem like a mystery and there is definitely a mysterious element to it, should be held both together. And Charles Spurgeon, as we mentioned him earlier, once said when he was asked, how do you, how do you, Bring together human responsibility and divine sovereignty, these things that seem to be such in opposition to each other. He says, I don't need to reunite friends. They're friends. They're parallel tracks. And there should be one more statement that's made about the answer to Jesus, to the question Jesus was asked. When he said, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, that is not a license for us to go around and proclaiming to others that they are not sheep. There is a big difference between the Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, the God-man Jesus Christ, who proclaims to those Jews who do not believe in him that they are not his sheep and us who do not know the hearts of men nor the will of God nor his divine decree. We are called with this great understanding of God's grace to pray unceasingly for the salvation of all 
we are called with this understanding of God's grace and God's desire that all should come to repentance and that it is not pleasurable for him the death of the wicked to proclaim the gospel to each and every person not once not twice but as many times as we have opportunity I would say it like this it is not our place to share the good news of Jesus Christ and then when someone does not believe say oh you must not believe because you're not sheep for maybe many of our own experiences can be related to a continuous non-grasping of the great grace of Jesus Christ presented to us in the gospel to finally one day see the kingdom of God and hear the voice of the shepherd and believe on Jesus Christ. So the answer here presents for us a truth that is a reality. There are those who are the sheep of God and those who are not sheep. Yet that this is something we are to leave in the hands of God and Jesus Christ. On our part is to pray for and to share the gospel with all we come into contact with, not declaring to pointedly some knowledge that we do not hold, that we somehow know who are the sheep of God and who are not. And we are to understand and hold both these truths in tension. That there is human responsibility for the rejection of Jesus Christ. And there is also divine sovereignty in it. So we looked at the question, we looked at the answer, now let's finally look at the promise. Jesus continues on. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This, of course, points us back to what he has already proclaimed earlier in chapter 10. This concept or idea that he is the shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd. And that his sheep hear his voice. They listen to his voice. And there is this great intimacy between them. That he knows them. And they follow him. Verse 28 tells us, I give them eternal life. Uh, this is a further declaration of what Jesus is saying earlier in chapter 10 when he said, All who ever come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So what does Jesus mean by saying, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full? Well, we hear in verse 28, understand, I give them eternal life. That that is the character of life and life to the full, the abundant life that he spoke of. It is eternal life. And how can Jesus so greatly declare that in him, his sheep have eternal life, the promise of everlasting life? How can he make such a great promise? He says, they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. 
He goes on, my father who has given to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. What is this promise really saying? Jesus, in response to those words, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, then gives words of comfort to those who are his sheep, lest they worry. He says that he gives them eternal life, that no one can snatch him out of his hand. The Father has given them to him, that no one can snatch him out of the Father's hand, and that he and the Father are one in purpose, in redeeming and saving the sheep. Here's the great promise of these verses. That our eternal security, that is that we, if we have faith and believe in Jesus Christ, can be assured that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. That this truth is rooted in the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Christ says, what is true of me is also true of the Father. The Father who has given them me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are in the Christ's hand. We are in the Father's hand. The Father and the Christ are one in this purpose. And although the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here, we know that in the redemptive history that comes, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the down payment of that eternal life which we wait for. What Christ has come to accomplish in giving his sheep eternal life, that no one can snatch them out of his hand, what the Father sent him to do, the Father who has given them to him, No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christ and the Father are one purpose and will in redeeming the sheep and keeping the sheep. And the Holy Spirit goes to apply to the sheep what the Father and Son desire. It really is a beautiful truth, and it's one that proclaims this great reality. What's that? It is to say that if you could lose your salvation, you would. The only way you can lose your salvation is for God to stop being God. Which shall never happen. Our eternal security, our hope that we wait for a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, and a new earth, resurrection bodies, this is something that we as sheep of Christ hold dear because we know it is our Christ who has promised us that no one can snatch us from his hand. It is our Christ who has promised us that no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. 
And it is the Holy Spirit which indwells each and every one of us that assures us of these great promises. I think one more thing could be said about these words. And that is this. When a contrast like this is brought forward, Christ says, not my sheep, my sheep. There could be an uneasiness for those of us who may have a weakness in our faith, who are sensitive to the sin that still remains and clings to us, who may have doubts. The question may come up like this, how do I know that I am a sheep of Christ? How do I know whether I am a sheep or not my sheep? For we have here two realities, two categories, and we must know which one we belong to. That is the thing brought forward before us today. We must strive to make sure that we are of the sheep of Christ. How can we know? Well, I think what is profound about this passage is that here we're not told to try to peer into the eternal decree of God, to try to seek to understand what exactly it is that happened in eternity past before the creation of the world. We're not told here, and to put it into other words, to ask the question, am I elect or am I not elect? That's not what's put before us. What's put before us here are great and wonderful characteristics of God's sheep. And these are the things that assure us by the Spirit within us that we are children of God. And the first is this. Sheep believe in Christ. If those who are not Christ's sheep do not believe, then it must be true that sheep believe in Christ. So here's a better way to put this question. The question is not, am I chosen? Do I belong to the sheepfold of God? Am I a sheep? Am I elect? The question, the better question is this, do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus? And here's why this is important, because... We are told in the scriptures that a mustard seed of faith is a miracle of creation. That one simple mustard seed, that a statement like this, I do believe, help me with my unbelief, is a miracle of God and the Holy Spirit and regeneration and rebirth. People of God, do not ask, what if I'm not a sheep? What if I'm a goat? Ask this, do I believe in Jesus? Do I hold him to be true and to be the lover of my soul? The second thing is this. 
The sheep listened to Christ's voice. We should always be listening for the voice of Christ and the Word of God. Are we seeking to understand what it is that He has done for us, who He is? Therefore, of all the many voices we have before us in our day and age, the sheep listen primarily to the voice of their shepherd, Christ. And the third thing is this, they follow Him. They follow me, is what Christ proclaims. Which means we not only hear the voice of Christ and His words because we believe in Him, but we also seek to obey by the grace given to us, those things He has commanded of us. Not in a burdensome way, not in a way as so as to prove that we are sheep, But because we are sheep, we can do nothing more than follow after our Savior. These things should help us and comfort us to know whether we are sheep or not. And these things are what we should look for in others as we seek to proclaim the good news of Christ Amen. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for these words. Help us to know above all that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are safe, secure. That in Christ, Lord, we are hidden in you. That no one can snatch us from Christ's hand. No one can snatch us from your hand. We are by faith, which is a gift from you in Christ. Eternally secure, we have the promise of eternal life knowing that we shall never perish. But Lord, may this truth be a truth that drives us to see others come to belong to this flock, this sheepfold. May we strive with all of our prayers and all of our time to see others come to hear the voice of the shepherd, to know him, and to follow him as we share the good news of the gospel of Christ. Salvation alone is found in him, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. Amen. We stand and sing with